So what are we going to look at this evening? We're going to look at how we can reform corporate governance, how we can change the way that companies are governed, companies are run, to ensure they act in the long-term interest of society, not just the short-term interest of shareholders. And we can already see why this is an important topic. Just yesterday, we saw the very sad collapse of the patisserie Valerie cake and coffee chain. And just walking out of the tube today, I saw one of the billboards advertising the Evening Standard, how the collapse of Carillion claimed yet another victim. So this is something that should be reformed. I'm going to give my ideas on how to reform it. But as I say at the start of every lecture, my opinion is not necessarily the right one. I encourage you to challenge me at the end. There will be time for questions and answers. I have one view on this topic, but different people can have reasonable different views. The main goal that I want to provide in this lecture is to give you evidence to suggest what works and what doesn't work. But even if we agree on the evidence, that doesn't mean that there's one right view. Even if we agree on the prices and characteristics of different cars, Different people will prefer different cars just based on their preferences. So even if I'm presenting evidence, that does not mean that my opinion is the right one. Now, before we want to think about how can we reform corporate governance, we need to first think about what is the goal? What do we want to achieve in any reform? What does good corporate governance look like? And I like to take a step back. And I like to take a step back, not just metaphorically, but also a step back in time, back to 1981. Now, in 1981, Sony released the first model of the electronic camera. Now, you might have a digital camera in your pocket. It's a sleek one, probably part of a, a mobile phone. But this is what it looked like, the Sony Mavica. And I can't even call this a digital camera. It wasn't even digital. It was electronic, it stored the images on a disc rather than on film, but through analog scan lines rather than anything digital. So this came out. Now, if you were Kodak, how did you respond to this? Well, what Kodak thought was we don't need to care. So Kodak was the clear market leader in film. Its sales had crossed $10 billion, massive amounts in 1981, nearly all from film. I thought people love looking at their photos, physical photos, on something that you can pass around and put in a photo album. Why would we want to have some electronic image, which at the time you could only display on a TV screen? And I thought, well, maybe, yeah, perhaps it could be that preferences change. So let's do some market research. And they did some market research. And they appointed Vince Barabba, the head of market intelligence, to do a study suggesting, well, might it be that in the future, if we improve the technology, people would now want to use electronic cameras? And he found that they did. Yeah, maybe this would be something that would change the photography industry, but it would take 10 years. And 10 years was just far too long for people to care about. Maybe the executives cared about their bonuses, which were paid according to how many profits they were making this year. They had what you might call a cash cow, something giving 10 billion of sales every year. Why even change? And the irony here is that if Kodak wanted to respond and wanted to change, it had every opportunity to. Because actually, it had a patent for the digital camera. 
It not only was the first to invent the digital camera in 1976, five years before. And if you thought the Sony Mavica model that I showed you was outdated and archaic, let me show you what it looked like their first digital camera. Something like this. So not hugely practical. It had a cassette tape where they were storing the, the, the film, the, the photos, but it was something that could have had potential. But instead, what happened? Well, a case study summarized what happened. The company just never got around to developing the technology because the money to be made from its traditional business of old-fashioned photographic film was so much bigger. And we know how this story ended. The Kodak moment is now over. Because in, 19, in 2012, Kodak went bankrupt, and that was a disaster. That was a disaster for shareholders, because the stock price was $31 billion in 1997. So shareholders lost their money. And remember, shareholders, they're not just nameless, faceless institutions. They involve people saving for retirement. But the big theme of my lecture series is that we don't just care about shareholders. We also care about society, and society lost as well. Because Kodak employed, at its peak, nearly 150,000 people. And so these people were out of jobs. Now, some of you who are in the business field might think, well, this is a rather strange thing for me to open up a corporate governance lecture. You might think, what does the failure of Kodak have to do with corporate governance? And you might think this, because when we think about corporate governance, we often think about a couple of things. We think about corp bad corporate governance as being about errors of commission. Those are where you do things which are bad. For example, in Patisserie Valerie, this might be committing some accounting fraud. Or in some other companies which are unpopular nowadays, they might pay the CEO too much, or they might engage in share buybacks to enrich shareholders at the expense of workers. So they are known as errors of commission doing something bad. Kodak never did something bad. Well, it never did anything, and that was the problem. But that's often not seen as a corporate governance problem. They're often seen as just a victim of changes in technology. And the second reason why you might not think of this as a corporate governance problem, as people often think corporate governance or bad governance is when shareholders enrich themselves at the expense of society. So it might be that the chief financial officer of Patisserie Valerie committed some fraud to pretend he had high earnings and get a bonus at the expense of everybody else. Or maybe, as I just mentioned, a CEO overpays herself and therefore can't pay workers. And all of these things are what I call pie-splitting behaviour, where you take something and you hurt everybody else. Now, why is Kodak not seen as a corporate governance failure? Because nobody took from every, anybody else. Inequality didn't rise. Why? Because everybody lost from that. It wasn't that executives got a fat paycheck and workers lost. Everybody lost. And so this is not often seen as a governance failure. So the first point that I'd like to start with is I'd like to change our view as to what is good and what is bad governance. 
Bad governance is not only about splitting the pie differently, i.e. chief executives taking more at the expense of everybody else, but also bad governance is about allowing the pie to shrink, not taking actions, and therefore allowing everybody to be worse off. It doesn't need to be that inequality goes up for it to be bad governance. It could be that everybody loses from this. So while often people think that Kodak was just an innocent victim of a technological revolution, this was not the case. They failed to move from their strategy. Why? Because it was just so tempting to coast, to stay with the status quo and not to change. And I've just made a brief allusion to what I am, and started my first lecture with, and that's a theme throughout my lecture series. And for those of you who didn't come to the early ones, let me give you a little bit of a recap. What the goal is of all of these six lectures is to think about how we can create value for society. Now, the value that a company creates for society, that Kodak gets from selling film, that a pharmaceuticals company gets from selling medicine, that a train company gets from offering transport services, we can represent that with a pie. Now, the different slices of the pie represent the different people in society who could benefit. So there are investors, and they benefit because they own shares and they get dividends. But there are also stakeholders, and those are other members of society. They could be customers who get the products, workers who get livelihoods, the environment because they're affected by your efforts to recycle or plant new trees or pollute, communities, the government through taxes and so on. And I'm going to call, I call all of those who are not investors as stakeholders. And we often think what is good corporate governance? That's to try to get a more even distribution. This looks like massively unequal. It's investors who take most of the pie at the expense of shareholders, at the expense of stakeholders. So if we could just change the division to make it look a little like this, wouldn't that be fairer? Right, so we can do things perhaps like tax companies more, or cut CEO pay, or restrict dividends and share buybacks, and therefore it seems that stakeholders are better off. But what I'm going to start with is to argue that that's actually not what I see good corporate governance as. I think the best form of corporate governance is to find ways to grow the pie so that investors are better off and stakeholders are better off. So it's not an us versus them argument who is going to have the larger slice. But if we can find ways to either innovate or number two, not just fail and, and coast and, and stick with the status quo, then this might be something that not only preserves workers' jobs, but also ensures that investors get their dividends and get their profits. Are there ways that we can come about which are able to get this? And while this might seem obvious, when I show this in terms of a graph, we'd rather have this one than the first. This is actually not that obvious, because if you look at a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the proposals to change corporate governance nowadays, they're about how we can split the pie differently. And notice that any proposals that we get, which are going to try to take from investors and give to stakeholders, they might be resisted by investors. 
And so the political situation that we have in the UK, but also around the world, is very fraught. You have some people who argue against business, some people who argue for business, and lobbyists will go in either direction. But what we're trying to look at in this lecture series is a third way. Is it possible that both people can get better off? Or is this just a too-good-to-be-true pipe dream? Let's look at some evidence shortly, but before I get to that, let's just hammer home a few points on this concept. Okay, so what I'm arguing here is what is good corporate governance? That is to promote great companies. What is a great company? It's not one that doesn't pay its CEO too much. It's not necessarily even one that pays a lot of tax. It's one that innovates, designs products that transform customers' lives for the better provides employees with a healthy and enriching workplace, and preserves the environment for future generations. And shareholders benefit by owning part of a great company, but also other stakeholders benefit as well. So we want to grow the pie, but also it's important that the gains are fairly distributed. It's not just shareholders who benefit. Everybody benefits. Importantly, workers also benefit, rather than just the chief executive, because if a company does well, it's probably down to the workers at least as much as it is the management team. So this stresses the importance of growing the pie through innovation and taking risk. And while I talked about earlier the idea of errors of commission, doing something bad, we want to prevent companies doing bad things, such as accounting fraud. We also must think about errors of omission. That can be just as dangerous. Those are omitting to do certain things, such as to innovate and to change the status quo. So something like Kodak, that was an error of omission because they just chose to coast. And here, you have a rather awkward tension. right? Because if you want to prevent errors of omission, You'd like to lead to freedom and, and, and deregulation to encourage companies to take risk. But the more risk that companies take and the more innovative things that they try to come up with, the greater the likelihood they will fail. And on the flip side, if we want to prevent failures, we can just regulate and, and stop companies taking risks. But then we might fail by not actually taking some innovation. So we need to recognize that some failures are a statistical inevitability of innovation and risk-taking. One potential price of having a lot of inventions is that there will be some companies that try things and fail, and unfortunately, their job losses. Now, we absolutely cannot be crass and, and heartless about this. These failures are still really important. I live above a patisserie Valerie. I know by name all of the workers who work really hard in that store, and I'm praying and hoping that a solution is found there. But what I just want to stress here is that there's just a balance between the two. On the one hand, yes, we want to make sure that there's a few errors of commission. Companies don't take bad actions, because failures like Patisserie Valerie are really damaging. But on the other hand, we need to encourage risk-taking and innovation, because if companies don't do that, they might fail by default, as in the case of Kodak. Now, this balance is really difficult to find. For example, let's think about the court system here in the UK. 
On the one hand, we want to make sure that we don't convict somebody unfairly. So to avoid that, we might say, well, we need to put a really high burden of proof. Maybe rather than having a jury of 12 people, why don't we have a jury of 24 people? Then they need to be unanimous. But we see here that the higher we put the burden of proof, then the greater the chances that some guilty people may actually go free. And so those are two difficult things. We want to make sure that no innocent person is convicted, but we want to minimise the number of guilty people who go free. And we recognise that the more stringent that we make the burden of proof, one of these errors goes up and the other of these errors go down. And so the, tra the ch challenge of society is we need to find that balance. That balance is really difficult, but my only point here is that we need to take both into account because we often evaluate the strength of corporate governance and whether things are working by saying, well, how many companies have failed? But I think we should also evaluate it by thinking about how many innovations have not been taken. Because in some sense, the UK and the US, while they're seen as cases for corporate governance reform, they also see some of the most innovations in terms of companies and those innovations benefit consumers and they benefit workers. Okay, so what is good corporate governance? It is trying to grow the pie, trying to be innovative and make sure that the whole of society benefits. What is it not? Surprisingly, good corporate governance is not about promoting the longevity of a company and ensuring that a company never disappears. Why? Well, I mentioned in my first lecture that a company only creates value for society if it delivers more value than could be delivered elsewhere. Because when a company exists, it uses resources. It employs workers. It asks them for their effort, their sweat, their ideas, and their talent. It uses resources. So you need bricks and mortar to build the buildings, and you need financial capital to finance it. Those resources could be reallocated elsewhere. If you didn't build a new factory, maybe the workers could build a school. So you don't necessarily want to make the company bigger and bigger, or even the company to be to sustain for the long term, if indeed it might have, in some cases, have outlasted its purpose. Sometimes it might be that the resources that a company uses are better reallocated elsewhere. So if a company sometimes is liquidated, as long as it's not for something like fraud or, or, or greed, this might actually be good for society if the resources can be elsewhere reallocated. And this was captured in a very powerful quote. So what he argues here, the author, is the ruthlessness of venture capitalists in killing bad ideas is far more important to their success than the ability to identify diamonds in the rough. The arm's length system plants a thousand flowers, uproots hundreds when they do not thrive, and nurtures only a few to bloom. New opportunities abound while old, tired ways of doing business are ruthlessly eliminated. The system's strength, then, is that it is not heavily biased towards preserving the privileges of incumbent firms and workers. Who do you think you wrote that, if for those of you who, who, who can't see the name? Does this sound like a, a heartless capitalist who says, oh, we want just companies to fail and it doesn't matter if others succeed? No, the person who wrote this was a guy called Raghu Rajan, 
who was the governor of the Central Bank of India, but he wrote this in a book called Fault Lines, where he was criticising the current capitalist system, which led to the financial crisis. He argued there's many things which are wrong with it, just like I'm going to be arguing today that corporate governance needs to be reformed. But what he said is that when you wanted to reform the financial system, we must also recognise that there are some strengths towards it, and these strengths are that they encourage innovation, not just prevent failures from happening. Okay, so that's where we're going to try and get to. How can we change things so that companies create value for society, for shareholders and investors? And what I want to look at now is I'd like to look at some evidence, which is one of the themes of my lecture series. Now, what I'm going to show you is that in some cases, actually, having shareholders running the company could be good for society. Because shareholders, they might not just take their own interests into account, they might also care about society as well. So the common debate would argue against what I just said. If you look at anybody who argues for the reform of corporate governance, what will they say? They will say, shareholders, they try to take as much of the pie as possible at the expense of society. So in order to stop them stealing the largest part of the pie, let's take some power away from them. So there's some very serious proposals. For example, Elizabeth Warren, who is going to run for president in the US, suggests let's have 40% of directors on a board be workers. At the moment in the US and in the UK, it's shareholders who choose the directors who run the companies. Why not have workers choose? Because if workers choose, then companies will be run to protect workers and make sure that they're not exploited. As those of you who saw my first lecture will know, I care very deeply about worker rights and employee satisfaction, yet actually the evidence I'm going to suggest now is not going to fully agree with that proposal. So that idea is let's try and reduce shareholder control, give it towards workers. And a lot of these claims, they're not always based on the evidence. Sometimes they're actually based on anecdotes and caricatures. So here is how a lot of people who criticise the current system go. They will take, as the subject of their criticism, this article in 1970 by Milton Friedman. It's one of the most cited papers today when we think about how to reform business. And the title of that article immediately seems offensive. It says, the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. That sounds crazy. That says the best thing that a company can do for society is make as much money as possible. Have you ever lived in the real world if you think that, right? Can you not see at the moment companies in their pursuit of profit are exploiting workers, are polluting the environment, and are saving money on, on taxes? And so people criticise that by saying, look, this is the current system with such a narrow view, and therefore by saying that the current system is so narrow-minded, let me now propose my own view of the world, and by showing that the current view is a straw man, it's easy to show that your new view is better. You can sell a lot of books and get a lot of followers. But importantly, what I like to stress, and I stress in my first lecture, is this argument here is actually far more nuanced 
than it sounds. Many people who criticise the current system have not actually read this article beyond the title. Yes, it's true that the title, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Profits, sounds provocative, sounds offensive, but if you actually read Milton Friedman's argument, the reason he says this is that in order to increase profits, at least in the long term, you need to care about stakeholders. You need to invest in your workers. You need to not pollute the environment. Otherwise, your brand will be hurt and otherwise your key workers will leave. So actually, there are many things within the current system which already take society very, very seriously. And so we want to make sure that we don't remove all of the good parts of the current system at the same time as making some important improvements. So often it is the case that we try to say everything about the current system is terrible so that any reform that you propose seems better, but actually there's some parts of the system which are actually good. And one of the irony in these things is that the UK is considered a leader in corporate governance on a global scale. The UK has the Corporate Governance Code, which holds companies accountable to certain things. It has the Stewardship Code, which I'm going to consider in my le next lecture, which makes investors do certain things. And these codes are exported overseas. Other countries try to emulate features of the UK when they set up their own codes. And yes, there, is there, there are some failures, but those failures were not necessary because the codes were ineffective. It was that the codes were not adhered to. So BHS was private, so not covered by the code. And so now we are reintroducing similar codes for private firms. Sports Direct chose not to comply with certain provisions of the code. Uh, and uh, it might be that actually the code, if applied properly, does work. So let me look at the evidence. So what I've claimed here is that a system where you have shareholders running companies actually could be good for society. Why? Because shareholders actually want to grow the pie because they know that if they grow the pie, they're going to get a higher slice and everybody else is going to get a higher slice too. So let me just give you an example by showing you a couple of the most influential studies on governance. Let's say there is the chief executive of a company. And I'm going to call him Pablo. And Pablo is an evil chief executive. His only goal is to pay himself as much as possible, fly around in a corporate jet around the world, and just to have a plush office. And Pablo is not only crooked, he's also devious. He appoints as his three directors, Armit, Delphine, and Sarah. Those are all of his friends from business school. And so they will just be friendly towards him and make sure that he's not fired, despite him being such a bad chief executive. But because Pablo is so devious, he makes sure that the elections of those directors are staggered. Armit comes up for election this year in 2019. Delphine comes up for election next year in 2020. And Sarah comes up for election in 2021. So this is what's known as a staggered board. The election of the directors is spread out each year. And so how does that help? It means that if I'm an investor, I'm angry with the performance of Pablo, I'm going to try to kick out the directors 
I can only kick out one third of the directors in any given year. And so I'm not going to have a majority. I'm not going to be able to kick out this bad chief executive. So you might think, well, this staggered board is really bad. But there might be others who argue that the staggered board is really good. Let's say instead, Pablo is an inspirational CEO. He's got some great ideas on how to innovate, how to treat his workers better, and how to preserve the environment. But he knows that maybe in the UK, we have lots of short-termism, is that investors care a lot about short-term profits. And he knows that if he's going to pursue long-term investment in his workers, profits will drop in the short term, and he may be kicked out by investors. So he might want to put the staggered board in place in order to protect himself from being taken over. And if he's not worried about short-term performance, he can focus on the long-term. And that's the spirit of a lot of arguments to reform corporate governance. It's that if we could only just insulate these visionary entrepreneurs from these pesky shareholders, then actually things would be better and we could act in a more long-term way. So the question is, which is it? Is it that these staggered boards actually help you taking long-term decisions? Or is it that they protect a bad chief executive like Pablo? Well, what the study found was unambiguous. What it found was that companies with a lot of those protection devices actually did significantly worse than companies with few. And the difference was eight and a half percentage points per year. That was massive. So in layman's terms, companies where the CEO was insulated from accountability to shareholders actually did worse in terms of long-term performance, not better. It wasn't that the freedom from shareholders allowed them to uh, take long-term decisions. It's just that it allowed them to slack and coast. And there's other things that you can do in order to protect yourself from shareholders. And this is something known as a dual class share, which is also something which is proposed in the UK. Here's how this works. And this is what we have in the likes of Facebook and Google. Most companies have one share, one vote. If I have a share in the company, I have one vote as to which directors are elected. But there's some companies, like the likes of Facebook and Google, where the founders, the entrepreneurs, they have 10 shares for every vote. So when they sell their shares to outsiders and have outsiders owning part of the company, those outsiders have very few votes. So the argument is, well, this is a way in which we can make sure we retain control of the company and we don't worry, have to have to worry about these outsiders who are just focusing on short-term profit. But again, we can look at the evidence and we find that companies with those voting structures pay their CEOs too much, do worse acquisitions and do worse investments. Again, suggesting that a corporate governance system where shareholders have power is actually not necessarily bad for value. Now, you might hold me up there for value, I said. But I've measured value by looking at the stock price and uh, other shareholder measures. But I mentioned at the start, we care about not just shareholders, we care about employees and the like. So that's why this study is really interesting. 
So what this looked at was it compared 37 countries around the world because different company, countries have different governance systems. So in some countries, shareholders have a lot of power. They can vote at elections by post or electronically. In other countries, shareholders have to physically show up, and that's harder. And what this study found was that um, the countries with stronger laws which favour investors, they actually did better on 11 out of 12 measures of stakeholder value, such as labour relations, community involvement, and environmental orientation. And I think these findings are really interesting because they change the traditional view of investors on their head. Like we often think that entrepreneurs are the heroes of society. They have ideas, they create jobs, they build companies. And it's absolutely true that entrepreneurs do have a huge effect on society. We absolutely want to understand the importance. But investors are often seen as the enemy. Right? People know the names of many great entrepreneurs. Most people could probably only think of the name of one investor, Warren Buffett. We often don't think about them as adding value to society. But just like a car has an accelerator pedal and a brake pedal, a great company has an entrepreneur with the vision and the drive and the inspiration, but also maybe investors that put on the brakes and say, well, maybe that investment decision might not be a good one. Maybe I've got an outside idea on how to run the company, which is slightly different from yours. And indeed, there's several cases where we see once great companies which just go under because of an a, um, unaccountable founder. So there's this company, Daewoo, which was a Korean giant founded by former shipwood worker Wu Chung King. And he just invested and invested in as much as possible. As The Economist said, he was used to making investment decisions on the spot based on hunches. No external accountability. People just trusted his gut. This company was broken up in 1999. Even more familiar to you might be Yahoo. Joe Yang, one of the founders, he rejected a 47 billion takeover bid from Microsoft. The stock price fell to a third of its value by the end of the year. And actually, some pension funds filed a lawsuit. This destroyed a lot of value uh, for shareholders. Why? Because he just wanted to be in control of the company. And one rather bizarre instance was Groupon. So Groupon, that was founded by Andrew Mason, who was the CEO, and he was given a $6 billion takeover bid by uh, Google. And then he responded to the bid in this uh, following way, by turning it down. And so there was a video which hopefully uh, will start to play. One time he called me up, he goes, I'd like to announce one thing to my employees myself. Um, but... Uh, I've heard the IPO is actually quite soon. The IPO filing. <laughs> is, that, is, is that the DARPA death race there? <laughs> well, that worked. I'm completely finished. I don't know what else to do. Why didn't you sell your company to Google? <laughs> Fascinating technique, and yet completely ineffective. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so 
So this was the famous um, death stare of Andrew Mason. So when he was questioned, he just would not give an answer. He would just, uh, uh, just feign having an aneurysm or giving a death stare. And so this was something, uh, this was not unusual behaviour. So he did this publicly, but he was known for wearing gorilla suits around the office. He was seen as an entrepreneur who was visionary and was untouchable. But as a result of that, right, this wasn't something that enriched him and hurt everybody else. This was just bad for Groupon. He turned down this, this offer of six billion. The value fell below three billion in 2012, and he was named worst CEO of the year by CNBC. Now, clearly, not all CEOs are like that. There's a lot of great ones, but all I want to say here is the importance of balance. We have some great visionary CEOs, but we also still have imp important investor oversight, just like a great car has accelerators and brakes. And a bit closer to home, we can look at this example, which is Philip Green of BHS. So there was an inquiry into the, the disaster that was the BHS collapse. This three-month inquiry found a near-complete absence of the constructive challenge that is the hallmark of good governance. Sir Philip, a dominant personality, ran his companies as a personal empire with boards taking decisions with reference to a shared understanding of his wishes rather than the interests of each individual company. So what am I concluding here? You might think, well, I've just stood up for basically no change to the current system. I've said that systems where shareholders have power are systems that work well. Why? Because shareholders make sure that they try to grow the pie to benefit not just them, but also stakeholders. And the evidence does suggest that shareholders benefit, but also consumers and employees uh, and so on gain as well. But that is actually not the case. I'm not claiming that there should be no changes. I think that there, there should actually be some, but instead what I'm going to propose are some sort of more minor changes rather than completely scrapping the current system. So if you came here thinking, I'm going to suggest scrapping the current system and radical changes, I'm very sorry to disappoint you, right? Because yes, there are indeed problems which need to be fixed, and I'm going to suggest fixes, but we also want to look at the evidence which suggests that many aspects of the system are indeed working. All the other countries around the world which are trying to adopt UK practices are not being foolish. But while the only things that I'm going to suggest are going to be three in number, not many, those three, I believe, will be quite profound changes, so they'll be, they'll be large in impact, if small in number. And the first one is what I'm going to call Say on Purpose. Now, again, for those who were unable to come to the first lecture, let me give you a recap. What is purpose? The purpose of a company is its reason for exist existence. It is the role it plays in the world. It's how it contributes to human betterment. Importantly, I stress that the purpose of a company is not to make profits, it's to serve society, but profits are a byproduct of serving your purpose. For example, a pharmaceuticals company, your purpose is to make medicines that transform people's lives and, and uh, advance health. If you do that, you will be profitable, but those profits were not your purpose. If you're, let's say, a toy company, that may be to make toys that entertain, but also educate children. And if you do that, you'll be profitable. Now, one of the things that I stressed when I talked about a company's purpose 
is that the company's purpose has to be awkward. It has to be uncomfortable. Why? Because many important business decisions involve trade-offs. I talked two lectures ago about a company who chose to cut, shut down an energy plant even though it made hundreds of workers redundant because that energy plant was the dirtiest polluting plant in Australia. But how did its purpose help? Because its purpose highlighted that it saw the environment as even more important than employees. So a purpose statement, if it's to have any value, to ask you who a company exists for. Yes, we care about employees and customers and the environment and shareholders and the taxpayer, but there's some decisions that will benefit some of those and hurt others. So a clear purpose suggests, well, who is the first among equals when the rubber hits the road and there's a difficult decision, who are you going to prioritise? That's who it exists. And why it exists is that once you've decided who you exist for, how are you going to serve them? If I'm going to exist for my customers, am I going to serve them by reducing my prices or increasing my quality? Now, what I talk about in terms of a say on purpose is I want to ensure that shareholders have buy-in to what a company's purpose is, to make sure that the uncomfortable trade-offs that they've highlighted are ones that investors are willing to, to be happy with. Now, at the moment, in many countries, like the UK, there is what's known as say on pay. Here, how this works is that when a company proposes a way to pay its executives, investors can vote on that. And they actually have two votes. There's one vote where they decide on the pay policy going forwards. So that policy might say the maximum that the CEO can get paid is 5 million. But also, there's a second vote which looks backwards. Have you actually implemented that policy? And people like say on pay, and there's some evidence that it works. But pay is not the most important decision that a company makes. How a company pays its chief executive is relevant, but that is far less relevant than whether you innovate, how you treat your workers, whether you pollute the environment. So I think far more important than a say on pay is to give investors a say on purpose where investors get to weigh in on the company's purpose. So if a company says, we are actually going to sacrifice short-term profits in order to invest in our employees. Is that something that investors are happy with? If the company says, when push comes to shove, we will care more about the environment than maybe suppliers. Are these things that investors are happy with? And I think why it's so important to get investor buy-in is because, as I argued, in the current system, there's many good reasons for why investors should have the say and should have control over firms. But as I mentioned in my first lecture, investors do care about all of those stakeholder dimensions, and this makes sure that investors have bought into it. So, just like pay, I propose there'll be two votes. One of them is forward-looking. Going forwards, am I happy with what the company has set out its purpose to be? Am I happy with their stated trade-offs? But second, and even more importantly, is looking backwards. Has the company lived up to it? Well, it's so great, it's very easy to have a great inspirational purpose statement, 
But is the company walking the walk, not just talking the talk? So have you actually trained your workers like you said you would? Have you cut your carbon emissions? How much have you promoted youth employment? And why is that so important? We're talking now about how to modernise accounting, how to change balance sheets and, and financial statements beyond just profits and towards the measures that actually matter, such as youth employment, such as perhaps diversity, such as environmental emissions. And if indeed it is the case that investors are needing to vote and needing to hold a company accountable to its delivery of purpose, they will demand all of those metrics and ask for them to be communicated all of the ways in which they're serving society. Now, this vote is not a binding vote, right? It's not that you can do something um, if you're voting against the purpose. But if you're, if you're having a large vote against, that suggests that there's something seriously wrong, and therefore this might lead to you to change the purpose strategy. And also what I want to stress is that the vote, what matters is not just the outcome. Was it 68% or 80%? In order to vote, investors need to figure out how is the company doing? They need to read beyond the financial statements and look at the carbon emissions and look at how they're treating their workers and so forth. So the vote is just an outcome of that process. That process is one which involves evaluating a company, not just in profits, but also those other dimensions. The second thing, that I think should be radically changed is the incentives. How do we pay chief executives? At the moment, they're paid according to short-term profit, and those profits or, 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 uh, might be uh, added to other financial measures, such as revenues. Instead, what I suggest is that we should give, invest, uh, give executives shares in the company, which they must hold for five, seven, or 10 years to make sure that they have the company's long-term interests in mind. And I also stressed in the last lecture that we need to give shares to workers as well to make sure that if the company does well, it's not just the leaders who benefit, but employees because they worked hard and contributed to the company. Because that was the subject of my prior lecture, and because I want to allow time for you to challenge me and suggest your own ideas, I'm not going to spend more time on this, but just refer you to the transcript, which is available outside. So instead, what I'm going to end with is to change the structure of board committees. So the board is the top, and often corporate governance starts with the top. It's the board of directors who chooses the chief executive. Now, currently, there are most boards have four committees. One is for the pay of the CEO. One is the nominating committee to choose who the new directors will be. One is risk, and one is audit. And, and clearly, those committees are important. Indeed, participatory evaluation may have been an audit issue. But if you look at some of these things, these are about downside protection, not screwing up, not making errors of commission. But as I said at the start, good corporate governance is not about just avoiding failures. It's about grabbing opportunities, taking risks, innovating, and growing the pie. And with that in mind, I think companies should have other types of committees. So I think companies should have a human capital committee. That is a committee which is charged with taking workers very seriously. Now, I have argued that we don't necessarily want to have workers on the board. Again, the evidence suggests that shareholder control does work. But workers are critical for the long-term value of the company 
that was part of the subject of my first lecture. And this committee should be charged with making sure that workers are fairly treated, invested in, and thought of as a huge asset and resource of the firm. This involves something, many things. One of them is pay. And indeed, some reforms, like disclosing pay ratios, focus on the pay that workers get. Pay is clearly important. That's what pays your mortgage and puts food on the table. But what a worker gets from a company is far more than just her salary. It's other things, such as her training, to the extent to which she's engaged. Does she suffer in a discriminating environment? And also, are you investing in the physical and mental wellness of your workers? Most boards know how much a company is spending on their IT. Most boards do not know how much a company is spending on the mental and physical health of its workers. And something like a human capital committee should be charged with that. And also, there might be other types of committees which are relevant. Certain companies, if you're in the tech industry or pharmaceuticals, maybe there should be an innovation committee. So while the risks committee makes sure you don't mess up on the downside, this makes sure that you take opportunities on the upside. Maybe for some of the other companies, you might want an environment committee if you have a large effect on the environment. But basically what I'm saying is whatever you define in your purpose as being important, that should be reflected by what is seen as important at the board level. So let's wrap up. And there's other things I don't have the chance to go through today, but they will be in the transcript. In conclusion, what is good corporate governance? Where do we want to get to when we think about these reforms? It's not just about companies not screwing up. It's not just about companies paying themselves too much. But it's about companies innovating and growing the pie for investors and stakeholders. I would see Kodak as a major corporate governance failure, even though it's often not seen that way. And so the way in which we can do this is to grow the pie for the benefit of all, rather than taking from investors to give to stakeholders through stay on purpose, through long-term incentives, and through board committees. And investors are key to enforcing this. Why? Because we are, uh, we are within a system of shareholder control, and the subject of my next lecture, the stewardship role of investors, is to make sure that investors do their job of actually taking all these things into account, but that will be for another time. So for now, I'm very happy in the final 10 minutes to take any questions, challenges on things that I've, 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 I've said. And also, given I'm about errors of omission, not just errors of commission, what are things that perhaps I've, I failed to say? Well, maybe there are other aspects of governance that you have ideas to reform that I didn't get the chance to go through. So thank you very much for your attention. I, I really look forward to, to your challenges now.